Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Every week at this time, the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio features artists, writers, and filmmakers, and actors, and musicians, and other creatives who help weave the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. And I can't believe I got through that whole thing with no script and no notes. Welcome to the show, (laughs) Fina McDonald. for our listeners, Dina McDonald is uh, she's a steampunk novelist. Actually, huh? I better catch you right now. It's Dina MacArthur. Yeah, Dina where did you get that? I don't know where I got Dina McDonald. <laughs> Let me start that over again. Okay, no problem. problem. Welcome to the show, Dina MacArthur, steampunk novelist, best known for her Volcano Lady series. The Gaslight Adventures of Tom Turner, uh, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. The Yankee Must Die, Huakai. I can't pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> I would need to get my friend Brandy or Huaka- Roy over here. Huakai Huaka- Po, oh. the, night, mm-hmm. the Night Marchers. And Volume 2 is Death on the Barbary Coast. And Volume, uh, volume 1 of The Volcano Lady is A Fearful Storm Gathering. And volume two of the Volcano Lady is to the ending of the world, and the Tom Turner adventures are really sort of a um, uh, sort of a, a second second storyline, a, a, a sort of a penny dreadful sort of um, uh, addition to the Volcano Lady um, uh, steampunk universe, aren't they? They are. Um, I, I will confess to you that, like uh, Dorothy Sayers falling in love with some of her characters way back when, I sort of got a crush on Tom. You know, you get to write his intimate mm-hmm. thoughts, you get to write all about him, you create this character in your head, and the next thing you know, it's like, gosh, I'd like to go out with him. <laughs> um, uh-huh. You know, and it, it happens. Um, most, most authors will tell you that, that they at one point develop some kind of relationship because we're building sort of our 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 ideals mm-hmm. of people. And um, so I wanted to continue telling his story, Tom Turner's, mm-hmm. because he turned out to be a very fascinating character, which is so funny. Where I got him, it, was, it wasn't as, as sexy a character. It wasn't as, as interesting a uh, 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 being it, um, Jules Verne 
wrote uh, two books that concerned Robert the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. And one was called Robert the Conqueror, and then mm-hmm. the other one, I think he wrote about 15 years later, was called Master of the World. And mm-hmm. anybody who's ever watched the Vincent Price movie knows mm-hmm. that they put them together. And, you know, Vincent Price can always do justice to a Vernian character. Well, then, of course, Ro- Robert is, uh, is actually a character in your books as well. So Yes, that's definitely. A, that's a nice, a, a nice interweaving of, uh, of uh, the the original, uh, you know, the reg- the original uh, wellspring of the steampunk genre, you know, the Jules Verne stuff, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think. They're under well, the seas. Seas, yes, plural. It's seas. plural. Thank Among you. many things, we've always done this terrible habit of, of mistranslating. Well, Tom was actually listed, actually Master of the World listed as John, and in Robert the Conqueror's Tom, and he was this short little little English guy who was the um, the first mate aboard the various craft that Robert created, mm-hmm. and so I thought, well, all right, so that makes sense, and I found myself growing it from there. And Tom, the Tom Turner of my books is is a far cry from yeah. from a, about three lines in in both books, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, uh, both Vernian books. I discovered that I really enjoyed doing the pastiche of Robur and bringing in Nemo. Nemo is in mm-hmm. both of the Volcano Lady books. And I really liked being able to have a little time to talk about what were the consequences after 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for uh, Professor Aranax and his assistant Conseil and whatever happened to Ned Land and who are all these people and whatever happened to them. So being able to tap that was, uh, it, to me, I, I, I guess it was a way of flattering um, in that bizarre way of, you know, imitation being the most sincere form of flattery, uh, flattering Vern, who I have adored since I was mm-hmm. little. Of course, I fell in love with James Mason first and then went, oh, there's a book? Okay, and <laughs> read the book. <laughs> and of course, he's, he's, part of a, he's part of a love triangle. And and the center of it, at the center of it, is the volcano lady herself, Letty. Um, Doctor Gantry. Doctor Letty Gantry. Let's talk a little bit more about her. Where did uh, where did she come from, and how did you uh, how did you develop her into a character? Somebody, um, a dear friend by the name of Jay Davis, who is the Professor Flockmacher, and I put him in the books because he's such a dear, and he was so helpful. Um, and I do that, I, by the way. I warn you, you know, I tell my friends, don't tick me off. I'll write you into a book and kill you off. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Jay and I were chatting, and Jay was one of the reasons why I was introduced to steampunk at all. And I kept complaining. I had found all these books that were out there, and granted, I had not tapped even a, 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 a percentage a small percentage of the books that are available, fantastic books, by the way, I've discovered. But I um, I was complaining how they were all written by guys, for guys, based on, you know, guys in the Victorian world. And it was like, no, there were women there and amazing things going on. And, and I would read a book and it sounded like someone had taken a modern woman and just plugged her into a corset and said, there, Victorian. So it was all driving me nuts. I'm Mm -hmm. a historian. I love the Victorian period. Uh, 
I'm fascinated by the, the psychology of manners. I love the idea of what drove people to explore. So Jay was listening to me go on and on and on about, oh, I didn't like this. No, they cussed their way through that book. You know, don't they have other adjectives? You know, and on and on. And he finally looked at me and said, well, if you don't like what you're reading, why don't you write something yourself, you silly woman? <laughs> and <works>. I did. <laughs> and it worked. Well, hmm. I've been writing all of my life, so it made sense. It, it really made sense to me. And encouraged by fabulous friends and Lord knows the most patient father in the world, who is one of my editors. And I will tell you, if you want to be a good writer, you need to have critics and editors who will go through and really, you know, tell you the truth. You know, that really doesn't work or that was great. But you need your cheerleading squad. And in this case, it's my father, who is also, by the way, a teacher, a long, long time a uh, public school teacher who would not let me get away with not explaining how something worked or did you mm -hmm. really understand that it goes that way um, how, wait a minute I counted five guys attacking Tom and yet we've accounted for three where are the other two you know little things like that so mm -hmm. he doesn't let me off the hook but he is definitely one of my cheerleaders I it's great to have somebody like that in your life who can who can uh who can help move you forward. And so many beginning writers don't have that and they're trying to work in a complete vacuum. And uh, under the misassumption, the, the misconception. misconception, thank you. There we go, I like that. It's, it's, I, I, inventing, oh, be Shakespeare, invent your own words on the fly. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the misconception that, that uh, uh, creative ideas, creative thought just emerges uh, in fully formed out of the void of someone's uh, imagination while they sleep or something. Well, you know, I, I would love to think that every book I ever, I ever will write or ever have written will suddenly leap like Athena fully formed out of the head of Zeus. I'm not, it, it's, it's true. You have to, you have to actually craft it. Uh, you have to really think through things like plot and subplot and then having editors oh your editor is your friend repeat after me budding authors my editor is my friend repeat often rinse and repeat again because <laughs> seriously uh, people think that the editor is the enemy because it's they're attacking your creative baby and mm -hmm. at one point or another you have to step back and say my creative baby needs the public school teacher come on over mm -hmm. let's 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 work this through yeah, or or so, my creative baby may have an extra it. arm or leg that needs to be <laughs> yeah. removed yeah, before he can be presented please. to the public yes <laughs> things it's true. like that it's true and and often budding authors um and i say this having been one and having tripped and fallen on my face very solidly I could show you the rejection letter I once got from Marion Zimmer Bradley. Ooh, you could light the room on fire with that. Um, she didn't pull any punches. No, she didn't. On the other hand, she loved something else I wrote, and it was probably one of the most uh, sincerely flattering uh, rejection letters I've ever gotten. Mm -hmm. She really the time. Oh, wow. So I have one each from her, and I should probably put them in, in one in a black frame and one in a white frame. Well, <laughs> so and the, one that, the one that goes in the white frame is all the more valuable because you know that she was speaking, she was speaking from the heart. She wasn't... Uh, well, she always did. You know, well, she always did, but, uh, but well, you yeah, know that she was being honest. completely honest with you. 
Well, being and a Berkeleyite, so... it was easy for me to run down to her house and drop off manuscripts. But... Ah, uh-huh. But uh, that was that was always the the fun of it, and and you you learn, you fall on your face, and you have to also remember that this is a business. Um, you guys are out there, you're doing these great shows, you're doing things. This is Krypton Radio is a business. You have to treat it like a business. Absolutely. As an author, you have to behave as as a business person because once you're done being an artist, you then have to turn around and be a PR manager, your own. You have to be a marketing manager, your own. You have to become a publicist. You have to become uh, your best advocate. Uh, and you have to work with the business that a publisher, if you're not self-publishing, and even then it still counts, it's a business. You have to sell the book. So if it's not tip-top, if it, if it isn't the quality that you would like and that somebody who is a professional knows what they're doing and understands marketing books could look at and say, we do have to do something here. You know, you're kind of stuck. You won't sell your book. And if you're, especially if you're going traditional publishers, now that there's three really good ways to go with that, um, now that you're going with a traditional publisher, if that's your route, you... Mm-hmm definitely have to remember they're not in it for the art they're in it for the for making a, a living a business so the three different ways of uh, of publishing uh, are one of which is obviously going through Amazon what are the yep. other two um, well okay think of it, it this way you've got the traditional publishing arm that's going mm-hmm. to ace or penguin you uh, one go of the big, in one of the one of the paper press publishers. one of the big big houses right and there are very many advantages to that and disadvantages. You have on the other end of the spectrum self-publishing, going to create space. And I believe that there are a couple that are starting to come up uh, that uh, are going to compete with create space very soon for the hardcover, not hardcover, but hard copy version. Mm-hmm. You can get on Smashwords. You can get on Kobo. You can go on to different sites as well as Kindle and do your ebook. Some people stick to ebooks. And that's under the self-publishing. Mm-hmm. In between, and that's kind of where I fell, is with the small independent publisher. And that is, uh, for me, it was Treasure Line Books in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a small publishing group. And she basically had about 20 authors. And that's it. And That is, that is not a big stable of authors. It's, it's almost too small to be stable. It, it, it's surprising that that's probably a pretty good size hmm. uh, okay. and a good place to start and then begin to grow. Mm-hmm. But you have, uh, I have friends who are with other publisher, publishers who are up around the 200 author size and they've built that up slowly. And what you get with that is you get uh, the same exposure that is possible and that, but you have a, a great deal of control. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people self-publish, mm-hmm. and I don't turn my nose up to anybody who takes that route, um, because it's a very hard one. That's that's almost the hardest route to take. Uh, and Because you it, have to do it, everything yourself. Absolutely you everything. You do. Every last annoying detail is definitely yours. But even in the traditional sense, even if I were to, say, uh, get picked up by Penguin Books tomorrow, or Schuster, or whoever's out there still, because I think it's coming down to about four places these days. Uh, yes. 
There can be yeah. only one. Yeah, unfortunately. But, you know, even with that, you do your own marketing. They expect you to be out there hustling. They want you to be have a social media presence, do press releases, do all sorts of interesting things. And they'll help you with it. They'll get you into catalogs. Mm-hmm. And they'll get you into the middleman business like Ingram that goes out to the bookstores and the bookstores buy from them. Um, and this, but, these are, all these things used to be the domain of the, the big publishers. They used yeah. to schedule all this for you and handle handle the promotion. And, and this was this was a large part of the value that uh, that you got from forking over so much of the the royalties for the book. Indeed. Uh, and, and with a traditional publisher, you're also talking about very likely an agent who takes their piece because that's how they, that's what they mm-hmm. do for a living. And so, you know, you have to kind of go in and do a comparison. There are vanity presses out there, uh, which is essentially a press that will do the formatting and help you with the book cover and maybe get you an editor and things like that. But you're paying for it. You, you pay for the, for the service. Um, but I put that under self-publishing. It's just one of the methods that you can use. And I think there's some amazing work out there. I think you interviewed Elizabeth Watterson. Yes, Elizabeth Watterson. That's right. We did. She is brilliant. Absolutely she brilliant. Is. I love her work. And she's not only a brilliant, brilliant writer, she's also a gifted illustrator. And did you know that she was a Disney animator? Yes, and and she and worked on fun? she worked on some several very very well known uh, animated features, and working as a two as a traditional two D animator. Yes, which is very impressive. Yeah, well, oh. no, but the 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 characters that uh, that she uh, she portrays that they her main characters are extremely individualistic, very well thought out, very and very vividly well... alive. Even the dead guys. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much so. And that's that is drawing drawing the discussion back to uh, Dr. Letitia Gantry. Uh, that was one of the things that really appealed to me about her. Uh, I did not get the sense that um, that she was a 21st century woman in Victorian drag at all, uh, because the psychology was all there for the for the world in which she lives. And, and her motivations are very much those of a Victorian age uh, woman, uh, of course, tempered by the fact that she's also an adventurer, which is something that Victorian women just didn't do. Not on average, no. It was Not a... on average. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things where when a woman did it, everybody kind of sneered and then kept watching because they were really either quietly rooting for her or wishing they were her. But they couldn't actually come out in public and say so because that would be, you know, that would that would break the. Uh... Would break the contract. Yeah. Well, New Woman contract. was a thing, you know. Um, an adventurous was a thing. You see, it was a category people understood. Agreed, uh, and and there were so many rules. And while I will will always lament the loss of. Uh, really particularly good manners in the world today. I think the the gains are 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 pretty substantial. But as I said, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the psychology of the the century. You know, the the 1800s were a remarkable time, 
And they're the basis that when you think of steampunk, that's sort of the foundation space, what was Victorian. And then you kind of look at it from the, so what if? So I'm writing mm -hmm. alternative history and having discussions now with historians going, well, it's not historical fiction. Well, historical fiction is fiction and kind of taking it and bending it because you have to think about the fact that you have to fill in what isn't in the history books. You know, you know that uh, Napoleon uh, did X, Y, and Z, but what was his day-to-day -day business like? You know, did he walk down the hall in the morning? Did he get a glass of wine at three in the afternoon? I mean, little things like that. The, the historical author and the alternative, as a steampunk author would probably see themselves as, would need to actually think those things through and fill in in between. So it makes a very, very fascinating process. But Letty, I wanted to be a Victorian woman, like you said, and I like that comment, not just a modern woman in Victorian drag. And I wanted people to think the way Victorians did. And I wanted sort of there to be that feeling that that was just that they were existed within that time period. They weren't just overlaid onto it. And that was the fun part of working with Krakatoa as uh, almost a character in and of itself. Well, that's that, true. You you know the geology didn't change. You put everything, all you know, all your um, geological incidents in time where they were supposed to be. And that was a little tough uh, because uh, and so many people observed Krakatoa in different ways. But the neat thing about Krakatoa was that in 1883, they had the telegraph, they had uh, these lines, Great Western and a few others, running all over the world. So as it happened, there were Reuters people, journalists, on the ground sending telegrams all over the place saying this is happening. So it became, in an essence, the first disaster. And of course, like anything, like an accident, you have 10 witnesses, you're going to have 10 versions of it. Well, it was they... also the first televised event, if you think about it. Agreed. Agreed. The very first it, it televised was. event. People were getting copies of the newspapers that were being printed in between normal run times mm -hmm. to be able to observe this. So, uh, but the, the plethora of information was phenomenal. Uh, I dug through the Royal Society's report on Krakatoa, which included everything from records of barometric pressure changes, tidal changes. By the way, the, they noticed uh, tidal change all the way up in England. Uh, uh, First-hand accounts. One of the characters I bring out in the book is the captain of a passenger cargo ship that was running back and forth between Java and Sumatra, uh, a, a Dutch gentleman who recorded everything with that Victorian preciseness. And so we knew what it was he had to do and how he got through past the gigantic waves that were generated by the eruption. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew about... Um, the sequence of events leading through because both the Reuters uh, man, uh, a couple of other characters that I bring into the, the uh, book, and the sea captain 
all recorded everything. So we have these amazing details. Now, how do you do you take these things that are going to happen, no matter what, at 10, I think it was 10.10 or 10.20 in the morning, was the last proximal ex eruption that Krakatoa blew itself apart and it emptied its magma chamber so fast in that final eruption. It was the loudest noise ever recorded. But the magma chamber emptied, so you had this huge, heavy mountain and ocean sitting on top of an empty hole. The whole thing collapsed into the ocean. And if you've ever seen, you know, a kid playing in a bathtub and, or somebody who throws a, a stone into water, the initial splash is huge. Mm -hmm. That's what it created was a big bathtub splash. And so they got the um, coastlines of Sumatra and Java got nailed with uh, 30 meter high waves. That, that is that is one big in. slosh. That is a it's huge a slosh. slosh to the Atlantic. Now, if you compare that to like the uh, Boxing Day tsunami um, that was in the same region and essentially caused by similar uh, earth machinery, that, yes, that if you would, will, that would be the earthquake, the big one that. Uh, that was a, that earthquake was, and then a tsunami. Yes, the earthquake that spawned the tsunami is a. As a, a and, secondary effect, and in that case, the the movement came from underneath the water, so it raised the ocean up and then caused the wave, and that created something that was completely different and kept going and going and comes in what they call trains, multiple mm -hmm. waves, and they can those waves can go back like two miles. They just all of a sudden you have a wall of water two miles long and. 30 feet high and here it comes with the splash that was Krakatoa it was like a bathtub splash it stopped after it hit something so they didn't get you know they didn't get mm -hmm. tsunami waves rolling into Kenya that were caused by by Krakatoa so all this information is actually available thanks to those wonderful wacky Victorians who recorded <laughs> everything so I can see why steampunk, if you don't mind my head in that direction, I can see why steampunk latches into this, this era so well, is it's not just the technology. It's that we have the minutia. We, we see the detail. There's a marvelous book out. I, I apologize for not knowing the author. It's called How to Be a Victorian. It's a brand new book. And it's by a very, very brilliant author. And it starts with everything, including what people said about what it was like just getting up in the morning with no central heating. And what was it like blacking your stove every night to keep it working correctly? And what was it like doing laundry by hand and going to work and, you know, ditch digging with that. We have all this detail. It's so rich and begs to have somebody say, but if I could have done that with a computer, if Charles Babbage had been right, and I think that's where steampunk comes from, and it's just my personal theory, is that steampunk is this, this what if the Victorian age had been, and it's a way for us to take what has become a bit bland uh, and to make it beautiful. I just saw, uh, I bet you did too, just saw the um, 
latest release of the Mac iPad Air. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. It's oh, yes. elegant. Yeah, today it's is thin. today's the uh, today was the big Mac and, um, Apple conference. Exactly, and it's pretty, but not it 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 has an elegance, but it's not gorgeous. And you mm-hmm. can see some of these things at maker fairs and steampunk conventions that are marvelous, inventive, gorgeous, ornate. There's this absolute beauty to them. And I think we we miss that. We miss the the chaos of beauty on that. So How to Be a Victorian by Ruth Goodman. Travel back in time with the BBC's Ruth Goodman. Yes. Brilliant. So Brilliant. there was probably a TV show on this, which I'd like to catch up on. I, I would recommend it. Anything she's touched, I I think she's just done right by the time period. I think you raised an excellent another. point, by the way. The 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 appeal of of the marvelous machinery of uh, of the Victorian age uh, before you embellish it and go off into the world of steampunk. Um, inventors worked within spheres of knowledge that were fairly limited. Uh, they knew what their peers were doing, but they often didn't know what their peers' peers were doing. And, Very true. And uh, so you you got um, dozens of of clever solutions for everyday problems. So, uh, you know, you might find, say, um, uh, 16 different Im- implementations of a toaster you could hold over an open fire, for example. Mm-hmm. Things, like, things like that. Um, and the and the makers operate much the same way. They work with they work with basic building blocks that that give them shortcuts uh, that enable them to do complex things with relative ease. But then after that, the way they assemble these blocks are completely up to them and completely dependent on the problem that they're personally trying to solve. And very frequently, the machine that they build will be the only one of its kind. And so it was in the Victorian era. Very frequently, a complex machine might be the only one there was. And that I think that's very much in keeping with the spirit of steampunk. Oh, there we go. You're back. Oh. Hello. We he were, was hello. talking that whole time. I was talking the entire time, and you missed it. Well, I hope you recorded it. Oh, we did. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so what yeah. I'm... Uh, basically, I was... Uh, I was saying that uh, uh, the makers do what this, what we like to, uh, what we like about steampunk in that they, they created um, every invention. Yeah, every a invention. One-off. Yeah, every invention as a one-off. Henry Ford didn't, you know, set up a, you know, f- assembly line factories until rather after this time period. Very true. Uh, I think he and Edison get credit for the assembly line uh, factory. Yes, I think it's mostly Henry Ford. uh, Yeah, I would say so. Uh, Edison had his light bulbs being done sort of in assembly line. But again, you're right, it's a once-off. There's also the sky's the limit. If you think about it, nobody was telling you you couldn't do it. Because nobody knew for sure. (laughs) Yeah, nobody was sure, and everybody was kind of optimistic about it. Uh, and 
we don't often give the Victorians credit for knowing what they know because we can easily, oh, well, they were running around horse-drawn carriages and blah, 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 so they didn't know anything. To do my research, not only did I have to pull this Royal Society, which, by the way, it's still in print, a report on Krakatoa, but I found a first edition Professor John Wesley Judd's uh, volcanoes, uh, what they are and, and why they're important, and from 1881. And so it was just before Krakatoa. So I got to read what did they know? And they knew about certain types of crystallization, and they knew about this and this and this. And cut loose with that, we can do anything, just just invited invention. And I think maybe we also like the Victorian age because we can directly associate what we've got today with what they did. You've got Ada Lovelace inventing essentially uh, computer language. Mm-hmm. The first programming language. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you have the steam engine leading to the combustion engine. You have this opening of the world to travel, uh, to being able to ship things that you make away a, a great distance, traveling and visiting places that you hadn't seen before, books being mass-produced. It's, it's just sort of this land of wonder. I do want to, however, say that, that, that as much as we romanticize the Victorian age, there is, there's a dark side to it. And there, you know... No sanitation, for one The sexism, thing. the racism. You don't yes. stint that in this book. Um, I, I don't go into it in great detail, but I do think that I do think that, that Letty has to deal with, with sexism distinctly. Uh, I think that there's also nationalism involved. You know, everybody in the dime mm-hmm. novels, everybody's like, yes, that's a Yankee to Tom. Uh, you know, the little sneering, it's an American. Uh, you also have, there's a, a character I brought in from... Uh, Burns uh, from the Earth to the Moon. Uh, a, no, pardon me, from Robert the Conqueror. Ah, shame on me. I almost misidentified him. His name's Fry Colon, and he mm-hmm. was the valet of a very, very supercilious character. Um, Uncle. Uncle uh, Prudent. Yeah, Uncle Prudent. Oh, there's an interesting name. I'm not sure where Vern got that, but. Fry Colin, unfortunately, was a stereotype, if you read it. And Vern made up for it later on in Mysterious Island. But he, you know, if you're reading it as a modern reader, and you read Fry Colin, who is black, who does the yesum sir stuff, who... But that's how people hates... talked, you know? That's how they were expected to address their employer. Yeah. And you could... You could it, it's like reading Huckleberry Finn and recognizing when the author was writing, what time period was he talking about. You know, you kind of have to back up and go, is this, you know, let's talk about this. What has changed? What has grown? What needs to still grow? You know, the questions are there. When you read about, uh, I, I read some of these things about uh, these physicians who are absolutely certain that women's brains were not capable of math because that required logic and that required a larger brain and women had small brains. And that, and yet, yeah. 
you know that that's not true on a variety of levels. And as a modern reader, I can just read that and just cringe. But, you know, at the time, that's where the thinking is. When you read some of the statements as to why women shouldn't have had the vote, don't give them the vote for this reason, because it would be unhealthy for them. I mean, things, just some of the things that we used to believe, thankfully, are gone. We still have in a long way to go, but it's good to see it gone. I try to at least do right by Fry Colin, but he still gets kidnapped. Yeah, well, yeah, he well, he's still part of that. But uh, I, I'm going to be bringing him in in the in the third full novel, a volcano lady novel, and uh, he still gets he gets time in. But I also want to make sure that I don't end up doing the reverse characterization. And sometimes the pendulum swings the other way and we forget to give people our characters credit for humanity. We make them too perfect or we make them too much of a corrective to a, a past ill. Yeah. You have to kind of balance that and say, all right, people are people. You know, we, we, we can't put everyone up on a on a pedestal and say, yes, this group of people, fill in with whatever description you want, are perfect. They're not. We're people. And boy, do we goof up. So, and which I think makes the character more interesting. Uh, one of the reviews on Letty was that they, they thought it was, they called her mildly flawed. And I thought, I like that. That's a cool compliment. That yes. is. That is That's actually. It. Because who wants to be perfect? Who wants the Superman syndrome? You know, when you think about it, um, they had to kill off Superman because they couldn't do anything with him. Yeah, and they had to bring him back because the licensees were screaming. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and anybody who had been in the industry, and I tried being in the industry, by the way, and there's one of my, my successful failures, mm. um, was that uh, you knew he had to be brought back. You just can't have comics without Superman. Mm -hmm. And uh, But he had been created to a point where he was so perfect. He could fly, he could breathe underwater, he could breathe in outer space, he could do this, he could do that. He was impervious to bullets. How much green kryptonite is, is there out there? You know, you just have to kind of back up and say, well, that's nice. His his hair still has that funky little curl thing. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, Superman saves the day. Big Again. surprise. Yeah. Well, and uh, what I think, what I think, having an iconic uh, hero like that actually did uh, I think it was actually a gift to the writers in a certain way and that is that it forced them to be more creative with their storytelling uh, the the perfect hero isn't interesting if he isn't also human so Very. they had to introduce human frailties into Superman to give him the weaknesses that made him human and interesting so that he could have failures uh, failures in judgment, failures in 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 uh, his emotional constitution, and and you know, uh, bad guys can always uh, kidnap the people that they know are, are dear mm -hmm. to him. And and the people he has to, if he doesn't want to be utterly alone, he has to trust others with his secret, and that makes him vulnerable and them vulnerable. And there's some angst there, 
and uh, there, there's a lot of opportunity for good storytelling there, despite the fact that he's the world's most, you know, he's, he's the world's mightiest hero. Indeed, so, yeah. You know, so there's, the pendulum, if you push it over here, it's going to pop up over there. You're going to get, uh, it, it's, it's a zero-sum game when you're doing uh, character development. Something has to make room for whatever, uh, whatever thing pops up that takes up a little extra space. So and that's that's actually one of the things I admired about your characterization of Letty, uh, because uh, she has made personal sacrifices in order to be where she is, and yet this is where she wants to be. This is this is the best part of her, being the adventurer, being the explorer, being someone who goes out in search of things that uh, others in her society uh, either are afraid of or simply have a disdain for which perplexes her uh, to the utmost and I I wanted her also to not be so far forward in her thinking that as you said you know we we need to make sure she was plausible I needed to mm -hmm. make sure that sh her mother raised her to be a certain way and that her father was more liberal and uh, was was simply part of, of what created who she was as a child, and then obviously she would grow up with that. Um, but to be, you know, socially conforming wherever possible and, and understanding that reputation is everything. And that's one of the drivers for Letty, is that she's actually more afraid about what's going to happen to her reputation and her good name, which would then reflect on her family, then she is about staying alive. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way people thought. And that was very important to me, was, was to be able to put her into that context. Um, it, it's, it was very difficult coming up with, with Letty and not plugging myself into it so far that she became modern. One of the things I ended up doing was um, looking up a, a, an actual person uh, by the name of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. And Which sounds Dr. like a character name right there. Doesn't it? She was one of the first women physicians, licensed physicians, in both England and America. Uh, she had to go to Paris to get a school, a medical school, that would let her in. No English or American medical college would let her in because she was a woman. And so she had to go to Paris, she had to go to Germany to get her training. And as it was, she wasn't even allowed to be a full physician. She was a surgeon, which kind of like barrister and and solicitor, there's a, there's a slight difference mm -hmm. that a physician was one who was a little higher on than somebody who just, you know, did surgery. That was back then. It, uh, and so she went through quite a bit. There was also an Elizabeth Anderson who was pelted with eggs, which I kind of borrowed for Letty, pelted with eggs when she went to school by boys in class with her. And she had to arrange for cadavers to be delivered to her living room where she was staying so she could do autopsies and look at the bodies to study them 
because they would the some of her fellow students would bar her from being able to walk into the class and sit in class and watch them as they dissected bodies to show them what does a lung look like. Oh, for and heaven's so, sakes. Yes. So, and this was all during the uh, 1870s, which is, you know, when Letty was in school and getting getting her degrees. I do fudge a little with my history, not just in the steampunk uh, sense, but I do uh, give her a Ph.D. prior to when women were really getting Ph.D.s. Uh, but I wanted to make that show that at that time that was virtually impossible and should be considered an enormous success for her uh, and what she had to give up for it. So this is where you pull in from your sources, people who are writing and saying, I don't know what to write. Open a newspaper. <laughs> Get online. Uh-huh. You will find your story, and you will find your villain, and you might find your hero, and I, it'll go from there. So, uh, so like most writers, you you work from uh, uh, you work from story beats and put them together into uh, into your plot lines and and weave your s- subplots through them. Very much so, uh, because it, people recognize real life. Mm-hmm. And it makes them comfortable with your story if you're speaking from something they know. Stephen King is the master of this. He took a dog, a car, a hotel. He takes everyday things. A that clown. Not a cl- well, no, yeah. clowns scare me. I, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not. Well, I've always loved clowns. What is wrong with people? <laughs> I think it's this, this strange creature coming at me with with a laugh that I'm not sure whether he wants to be laughing or he's forcing it and it just kind of creeps me out but it was cartoons you know, he, before they were cartoons yeah it's true it's true but I mean think about what Stephen King does with average items he makes them terrifying and they're all the more terrifying because you could turn around and see one you know, the next time, you know, if you've read Cujo, don't go out and, and, and look for dogs. Give it a week because <laughs> it will scare you. Um, Christine, you know, you'll never look mm-hmm. at that headla- set of headlights coming on that you didn't see the driver and you know, blah, blah, blah. He's, that was how he scared us, was he made our every day scare us on his behalf. And then we paid him money for it, <laughs> um, which is brilliant. Mm. Um and so I wanted, I think that's what I look for when I try to find uh, modern storylines that might blend in to what's going on and try to write that. Uh, is that because this is something that everybody goes, I know this. The other thing I like to do is, I and, and I'm sharing advice with, I, I don't want to call them students because I'm so much a student myself. But I will get people into workshops at conventions, or I'm teaching a class uh, workshop, uh, not this weekend, but in two weekends, I believe, or one weekend after, um, to try to help people get through writer's block and things, because I don't want them to have to invent the wheel. But I tell them to, to not just to write themselves into something, but to write that which they would really like to read. Um, but to, how do I want to put this? How do I want to put this? 
it's it's a process where you're kind of exposing yourself. Really, you are because you are telling people what it is you like in people and what you don't like in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never mind that you're setting yourself up every time you put out a blog post or or uh, put your book online that somebody's going to come in and just have at with their opinion. Ah, uh, the, uh, the anonymity of of the internet. But you're you're also really sort of opening yourself up and saying, here's my creativity, here's what's on my brain, here's what's important to me. And you kind of have to be a little fearless about that. You have to really be willing to go the distance on that. So I assume now that you're working on the third book in the Volcano Lady series. Oh, yes. And I just got back from Iceland, too. Well, not just. I went in June. Uh-huh. Uh, to do to do some research and to I even brought home ash from Ea Efrayoko, oh uh, uh-huh. which is the volcano that went off in mm-hmm. 2010 and screwed up all the air traffic. Oh yes, I remember that. Oh, oh yeah, boy. they kept what a mess yeah. that was. Oh God, was it ever? Well, we went to that that the, thing spewed a tail six thousand miles long, didn't it? Yes, it did. And it was a minor eruption. It really wasn't all that big, if you think about it. But the the air currents carried all that volcanic ash, which that's almost a misnomer. It's it's really tiny particles of volcanic glass and and what we think of as ash and particles and things that just gum up uh, airplane engines. So I I, I I have to share one little story with you. It, it's okay. kind of silly, but it's it's one of those things. Um. When you go to Iceland, it's it's different than, shall we say, Hawaii on a variety of levels. But among other things, when you go to Hawaii, they say, don't touch our rocks. Don't take our rocks. Don't don't mess with our rocks. We only have so many rocks. If everybody takes a rock, all 20 gazillion of you tourists, we will not have an island. So don't mess with the rocks. Don't take the rocks. They even came up with this, the Park Service came up with this curse of Pele that you will have bad luck if you take away any of her lava and so they get these packages every year people sending back the lava that they took with them it's not like that in Iceland in Iceland it's like here have some rocks no really please have some rocks have some more really we'll have more very soon it's okay (laughs) and it's possibly because you know there's only about 50,000 to 100,000 tourists uh, during the year Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went with the Hawaiian thinking, don't mess with the rocks. But I wanted to go to the base of this volcano. So we drove down the coast with our, our wonderful, wonderful guide, Clint, and in a super jeep. And we forded over rivers and we drove up to this absolutely frozen area, this tongue of a, of a glacier, which is blue. No, uh, I'll tell you that National Geographic does not Photoshop that blue. It is that blue, the ice there. So here's this gigantic tongue. We can hear it calving and cracking in the background. And we're standing on frozen ground because it had been a lake bed uh, at the base of this freezing volcano. Uh, And when it had erupted, it blew out the side of the uh, lake and drained it into this valley. I mean, it's mile-wide flood zone. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, happily, nobody hurt. Um, so this was all going on while we're all worried about air traffic. They're worried about this mile-wide flood, and it drained the entire lake. 
So we're standing on the bottom of the lake bed, and there are rocks everywhere, and we're picking them up, and Clint's pretty good at this, and he, he, we're identifying rocks, and, and he said, so, did you bring your baggie? And I said, excuse me? And he said, baggie. And I said, well, uh, no, no six ounces, really, I, I don't have, and he said, no, 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 no. Um, he said, you need to take this home, and you need to take this home in a baggie. Wait, let me get into the Jeep. He couldn't find a spare baggie. What he found was one latex glove. I did not. I didn't ask him why he had one latex glove. I, <laughs> Maybe was this, much is, this is one of these questions better left unasked. Exactly. So I went and scooped up this black, gloppy mud and filled the fingers of this latex glove and then tied it off on the end. It's all volcanic ash, but it's wet because there's a glacial river running through all of this. And so I've got this muddy, uh, gloppy uh, thing that I've now stuck in my pocket as I'm climbing around on all the rocks, and you're getting this blah, 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 with the fingers. You know, just <laughs> the fingers flopping around on the... black udder, basically. Yes, that was it, basically, was this thing, and it flopping around. And so I had to carefully wrap that to put it in my baggage to go through you know, customs, along with rocks. I had more weight from rocks than I did from books, which is a shocker, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the porter says, what have you got in this lady? Rocks? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, my so gosh. <laughs> I'm, almost, I'm thinking, as I'm coming past the guys with the, with the Uzis and who are giving everybody the stink eye as they come through customs in, in mm -hmm. Seattle, because it's a direct from Reykjavik to Seattle. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, they're going to call me over. They looked at my luggage. They, they don't know what this is. I just know it. Imagine you're scanning somebody's luggage, and here comes this hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's opaque, you know, because it's full of rock. Yes. <laughs> because it's full of my... So I got it home and I sacrificed the latex glove, opened everything up, and let everything dry out until I had this ash and I put it in a jar. And I now have this beautiful, I mean, pitch black, two-year-old lava ash. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's gorgeous. And yes, quite a few rocks. I've got a jar of dirt. I've got a jar of dirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so proud I showed it to everybody. Um, <laughs> that's marvelous. So that's why I share that story. Um, Iceland is beautiful. You have to get out to the countryside. Reykjavik is, is a lovely city and terrific people, but you really to appreciate Iceland. There is no place in North America that I can think of that is looks, smells, or feels the same. Um, whatever you do, don't. they do eat horse. It is on the menu. It's just, you know, that's what they have. That's mm -hmm. what they culturally eat. Don't sample your your traveling companion's uh, uh, dinner plate of, of horse and then go try to ride one in the morning. They will know. Trust me on this. They <laughs> know. And they will get even with you. I had a little blazer. No, that wasn't for the little blaze on her forehead. It was for her anger at me for being on her back, not knowing what I'm doing in an English saddle, and we're fording through rivers. Oh, she got even with me. Trust me. Ooh, that's <laughs> oh, but Icelandic horses are pretty and they're cute and they're they're great. And photograph them and pat them on the head and feed them carrots and walk away. 
Uh, they don't speak English, so mm-hmm. woe doesn't work. Ooh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it, but you know, the waterfalls were phenomenal. I do have pictures on my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to back up to June, but uh, in June and July, I posted up pictures that I took uh, there. Waterfalls like you would not believe. They're uh, phenomenal make Niagara Falls look kind of, not wimpy, but certainly average. <laughs> and geysers, we walked through and stood there and five, four, three, two, one, whoosh. Wow. So all these things now I can write about as part of Letty's experiences. And you better believe she's going down the south coast. And you be- better believe she's going to see these steaming mountains because... The island is literally geothermal. It, it's, it's, it's a big, big volcano with lots of vents. It's just exquisite there. And I, I'm looking forward to the description, to being able to tell people what the dirt looks like. Why do, are all the valleys look like giant uh, you know, U-shaped? And the, the, the fact that they don't have... They cut down most of the forests back in like the 5th century or something like that. Uh, so they don't really have them except for birch trees. So the running Icelandic joke is if you get lost in the forest, stand up. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. That and I, I, I couldn't get out of the country without buying the little magnet because I don't wear t-shirts. The little magnet that said, what part of Eyjafjallajökull do you not understand? <laughs> <laughs> So did uh, is there a good volcanic uh, eruption in, in Letty's time period for you to write about? There is a volcano in Iceland called Hekla. And Hekla was once called the Mouth of Hell. Ooh. And has the habit of not really saying, oh, I'm going to erupt now. No, really, I'm going to erupt now. Feel the shaking? Yeah, I'm going to erupt now. It just erupts. Mm. And it's down there on that south coast. So Hekla has an interesting very, very interesting uh, sort of backstory to it with all the mythology and things around it. So uh, Hecla is going to be my probably my volcano of choice. I don't know. I'm going to have to see. Um, certainly the... Uh, it's easier Lat- to spell. <laughs> yes, it is, actually. And then they have the Latke eruptions uh, from the 1780s that like killed uh, a, a an eighth of the population in, in Europe because of uh, the, the ash in the air and it, it um, dropped the temperature of the planet for a little bit for a couple of years. So, I mean, volcanoes are very much a part of human experience, so I'm kind of enjoying being able to bring those into into the mix. So, uh, you've, you've got that. The, the third book is going to be The Volcano Lady, um, The Great Earthquake Machine. Ooh, I like that. I mean, that, yeah. that, that actually brings to mind a, a legend about Nikolai Tesla, who, uh, who purportedly built one. Uh, who did? Nikolai Tesla. Oh, okay. He, he built, and it's, the theory's been since debunked, but uh, uh, the theory was that he had strapped a reciprocating piston to uh, part of the building where his laboratory was, and it created a harmonic vibration that threatened to shake the whole building down. No, I thought it was uh, 
wily coyote super genius who had invented the earthquake bills. Yes, that was. But of those were actually he bought those. Those were from Acme. Oh. Okay. <laughs> oh well, you know, if you can't get it from Acme, who can you get it from? <laughs> the world leader in malfunctioning technology. Absolutely. Which is another fun thing about steampunk is just because just because it's technological doesn't mean it has to work. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, the trains that I wrote into uh, the French uh, passenger and commuter trains, mm -hmm. you know, that they were trying to run them on Wimshurst generators, which, by the way, if you look up Wimshurst, they are actual electrical generators uh, of the period. And, but they wouldn't work. They oh, were having okay. problems with them. And so they couldn't run the trains and they had to, to go get coal cars. You got yeah, real it, places in there, you know, Gare du Nord, etc. That was also fun. I I have not been to Paris, so I had oh. to do a great deal of research and go sit with people who uh, have been to Paris, like a, a, a very dear friend of mine, who in fact really, really got me going on this, along with Jay, and her name is uh, Sharon Cathcart, and she has written, her novels are uh, alternative histories, based on Phantom of the Opera. Ooh. Uh, so you need to check out Eye of the Beholder, and she's about to get a new book out. She also, very kindly on her website, has a little uh, PDF uh, download, and she's printed them off for classes at conventions, like Clockwork Alchemy on Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, basically, over the years, she's put out advice that she's uh, to authors that she's learned. She's compiled it into a little mini book and she gives it away wow. free that's magnificent yeah. that's very generous you know that's but that's how how we have to survive in this very strange world of authorship that is changing constantly is you have to give you really really have to give i'm going to be uh hosting uh this week or next depending on on how i how i get it all set up uh, a couple of authors who just want to talk about how they process uh, developing characters or getting a plot line going, and not just to keep my blog to my darn self, you know, let's share, let's get some airtime for people to be able to get out there and say, hey, I have a thought about this. And it's really about sharing. So when, when can, and I hate to be pushy here, but when can we expect the third book? What, what, what's your plan for for a published date? Well, I this year has been dedicated to the Gaslight Adventures of Tom Turner, mm -hmm. which, by the way, are the dime novels, uh, for your listeners. They're dime novels. They're uh, small, fast, action-packed, following Tom as he tries to get from Indonesia, basically the Dutch East Indies in the 1880s, uh, home in America. And uh, right now there are two books out. There's one that's set in Hawaii, and that's the night the Yankee must die. The that's, night my that's the one I'm reading now and thoroughly okay. enjoying. Wonderful pirates, uh, machinery, uh, volcanoes. Uh, I love Hawaii. I love the Big Island. So it was fun being able to write about what I saw there, including the place of refuge, which you'll you'll get to, uh, which is uh, it, it's a profound experience. Uh, the next book uh, that is called Death on the Barbary Coast, and uh, that is set here in my hometown, San Francisco. And I just, I have to the beta readers, and we'll be releasing in November the third and final book. 
and that is set in the West, better known as, it's called in proper dime novel lingo, Terror in a Wild, Weird West. <laughs> it's wild, it's weird. It's wild, it's weird, and it is set uh, as he goes uh, from Denver to uh, Colorado Springs, which is where I grew up, and that's actually where Tesla's uh, little encampment, his little enclosure that he had for a while, that's where he, he lived, was in Colorado Springs, at the base of the Rockies, at uh, Pikes Peak. Oh. I remember marching in the Pikes Peak or Bus Rodeo Parade as in the band, and also climbing in the Garden of the Gods, which is probably one of the most spectacular geological sites. But again, I get to bring in characters from all over, um, uh, lots of intrigue, lots of action, lots of weird technology, having a blast with it. So back to your question is, <laughs> as I'm finishing uh -huh. up that, I've been focused on getting Tom's third book out uh -huh. uh, in time for Christmas. Uh, and uh, my hope is that immediately thereafter, I'm going to start working on uh, the third book, The Great Earthquake Machine. And it, uh, I would love to have it in time for Clockwork Alchemy, which is uh, our local steampunk convention out here in California. Uh, Northern California, I should say. Yeah, Corey Doyle, the uh, now former chairman, is a very good friend of mine. Yes. Uh, Corey and, uh, let's see, we call them Siori and Kaori because we have two Coreys who are working with this. Yeah. And, uh, Satch and, and the whole gang have created not only a terrific steampunk convention, but a convention that's incredibly supportive of authors. If you want to improve, if you want to meet, if you want to hang out, if you want to become one of, you know, if you want to write, this is like the place to go. And you don't even have to be a steampunk author. But we run an entire track the entire weekend of nothing but panels, workshops on writing, getting your craft done. Oh, that's, that's marvelous. Great. That's marvelous. And they built us a library. We take over one of the rooms in the hotel, which is the Doubletree Inn. Uh, it's, I believe a Hyatt Doubletree now. Uh, the Doubletree on First uh, First Street in San Jose. Uh -huh, I've been there. And oh, it's a great hotel. Really, it's a it's just absolutely immense. Hotel. Absolutely immense. It's like it, uh, uh, it's like this the San Francisco airport. It's it's almost that big. But not as confusing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not much also, is that's also true. Well, hey, the the coffee shop and the bar are in the middle. You're you're done. You're okay. <laughs> yep, Whatever, that's yep. what's important. But uh, they they we took over this room where we give all of our our panels, and they built us a fireplace with a a digital fire going on, and uh, the chairman Thatch of of the convention works with lasers as as his real job, and so he set up this plasma thing that glowed and made interesting noises and we would sometimes back away from it um, <laughs> to sit on the mantle of the fireplace and so we turned it into the library and it's where we held the, all of our salons and all of our readings because that's another thing get, get used to reading some of your work authors out there because people want to hear you express the work that you've, you've done 
Mm-hmm. And so we get to read new pieces and we get to work with people who want to do something. We're trying to figure out how in the world to do like a little readers or a little writers contest. You know, you have three pages, knock our socks off with your opening paragraphs kind of thing. We're working on that. We'll announce. But it is a writer's haven. Uh, it really is. You could come in, hunker down, and you're safe to just ask questions and explore. Meanwhile, there's a maker's room. They're doing the same track idea with makers so that mm-hmm. people who want to come in and learn how to build their airship for airship races, uh, that, you know, things like that, you could come in and learn how to do that wonderful tinkering that you look at every, other people and go, oh, I could never do that. They yeah. can show you. Oh, yeah. Then yeah. you have this, <laughs> this artistic vendor's room with costumes and pocket watches and created things and just wonderful stuff and it's all associated with Fanime which is a, a, a gigantic convention downtown San Jose yeah that's, but, uh, that's no I, that's actually at the same hotel now um actually they, no. here, we it's were nearby. In, it's nearby but we were originally an overflow hotel and now our convention has kind of taken over but not completely and people are able to um, to stay there if they're with Fanime when they buy their tickets for one. It go you can go to both conventions. Well, that's which nice. I think it's very cool. There are shuttles that run. I between see. Hotels. Okay, I didn't realize that. I thought yeah. I thought yeah, the entire I thought Fanime was at the same. I'm not sure what the, the hardcore group. anime fans are going to think of all this, but I guess well, they, it's, they it's can funny. Come. Well, it's interesting watching them. You know, the 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 anime people and the steampunk people just. Well, sort not, of, you know, there's an overlap in that. There is, there is some. Yeah. There, there is. is some. But uh, you, you'll see them pass each other in the halls, and go and they sort it. of they turn and look at each other as they go by. You know, well, mostly it's it's admiring the costume. Yeah, work. mostly it is. Mostly. Yeah, mostly it's like, ooh, love some, how they did that wig. And sometimes it's steampunk it, sailor uh, mood. You could do that. Yeah, you, know, you could. Bell bottom trousers of of the, oh, yeah. the British sailors. I, I think that could be. Fun. I, I think we all appreciate cosplay, and so as we get to know one another, and we get to go, oh, hey, those are fanime people. I love what they're doing, or I don't know what they're doing. I think I'm gonna relax and go ask. I, I I think that there's a there's a general friendliness that can be can be not only is there but can be developed even more as we get well, to and know. They're, and they're just as inventive, you know, because exactly. they have to they have to solve problems that the the steampunk people don't have to solve because what they're trying to recreate is something that never existed in the physical world in the first place ever yeah and some of it is just not physically possible so you have to invent yeah, it so you have to yeah so you have to invent some sort of physical approximation of the effect there and, it is. and uh it's you learn so much from talking to the to the anime cosplayers because they know ways of building things that would never occur to you Absolutely. Some of the wig making, oh, some of the just, things I have learned from, from them. Oh, and I might be doing it on a smaller scale to create, you know, Gibson girl hairpiece or something, but the, the knowledge base is just absolutely incredible and, and a delight to get to know people who do that. And I admire the costume work, not only by my fellow steampunkers, but by the anime folks too. Just great. Well, it has been, it is hard to believe that our hour has flown by already. Uh, Athena MacArthur, thank you so much for joining us 
this evening on the event horizon. And we'd love to have you back for another show sometime. Oh, that was splendid. And uh, let's see, the website, the active one that's currently active is volcanolady1.wordpress.com. Eventually, it's going to be volcanolady.com, but the transition hasn't happened yet. Uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast on iTunes, you might want to go back and check because it may have been, they may have accomplished the transition by the time you hear this. We may have done the evil deed, you yes. may have gotten it done. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is this is fun. I like this. <laughs> I've been enjoying Event Horizon so much and uh, getting to hear not only friends and colleagues, but people I didn't know. It's like, oh, how fabulous. So thank you so much for letting me be on your show. Well, thank you and keep listening. Absolutely. This has been episode 38 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 16th, 2013. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. Our guest this week has been T.E. MacArthur, the writer and creator of the steampunk science fiction trilogies Volcano Lady and The Gaslight Adventures of Tom Turner. This episode will air again on Sunday, November 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads on the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by the Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>